Channel 33 is brought to you by SeatGeek, our presenting sponsor and our favorite way to buy and sell tickets to sporting events, concerts, and whatever else you want to go to. With the SeatGeek mobile app, you can quickly and easily buy tickets with just two taps and have your tickets delivered straight to your phone to enter the event. If you can't make it to the event, SeatGeek now lets you transfer tickets to your friends or post your tickets for sale, all from your phone. As a special offer to Channel 33 listeners, SeatGeek is giving $20 back off your first purchase with the code BSPN. To get $20 back off your first SeatGeek purchase, download the SeatGeek app today and enter promo code BSPN. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch on the Channel 33 podcast feed. My name is Chris Ryan and on the other line, he wants to believe it's Andy Greenwald. Man, the 90s were a weird time, right? The 90s. The time of no alternative. No, no of alternative. Pearl Jam but watching... unplugged. <laughs> you, should we just do that for an hour? We can yeah, do you that. You want to talk about writing, writing pro-choice on your arm with a Sharpie? Do you want to just talk about going to Lollapalooza and just browsing like the, the ideas marketplace, you know, <laughs> where you could pick up a lot of pins and maybe learn about like Fruitopia juices if you wanted to? Andy, if we're talking Lollapalooza, it means we're talking X-Files, which is what we are talking about today on The Watch. You can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. We'll be talking about X-Files. We're talking a little bit about uh, London Spy, the new espionage drama yeah. on BBC America. But bringing back an old chestnut that we haven't done since late last year, let's do a little in and out. How about that, man? I feel like the longtime listeners of our show were pretty thrown off by us having a recurring bit. So they were probably felt pretty good when we, we just we loosed ourselves from its shackles like three weeks into starting it. But it's time to... Time to lock up. Don't again. underestimate the passionate people who really only follow us for In and Out. Let's start with uh, what else can we start with? With the Game of Thrones teasers that came out, uh, celebrating like the banner flags of, of a couple different families. Andy, in or out on these news teasers? Oh, I'm in because th- this is, I feel like the marketing department at HBO have reached the sweet spot where they don't have to do anything, right? Yeah. It's basically like like you're selling a product that everybody wants, right? It doesn't so it, you almost don't have to do anything. So anything you do, you can just have fun with and be creative with and you can base an entire advertising campaign around a scrawled image of a dragon with some fire and people will be like, "Dope, I'm in. I can't wait." Like, I'm this is, in, this is but with the caveat going off what you said is I want to see HBO get even more creative. Why not put crying Jordan meme face on like yes. Stannis lying in the forest, you know? Yes. Yeah. Oh, oh man. Yeah. What? It, or like, um, God, I'm, I'm trying to think of who won at the end of the season. But like basically like the dude who showed his junk to Cersei, but with like the David Caruso sunglasses <laughs> dropping down over his eyes. Yes. And he's like, deal with it, Croatia. So we're both in on that. Let's keep it moving and talk a little bit about the newly released track listing from Kanye West for Swish, which is coming out, I think, uh, February 16th, if I'm right. February, February 11th. 11th, wanna, pre-Valentine's Day. What a softie. Also, also, by the way, my friend, um, you're forgetting the album's new subtitle, which is the greatest album of all time. Yeah, it's like ten, only 10 songs, right? So uh, sticking with, I think a while ago you talked about how he wanted to make a very compact thriller, like nothing, all, all killer, no filler album. Um, we probably were feeling a little low on this when it was just all day and facts. And now we're feeling pretty high on this now that we've got uh, new real friends and no more parties yeah. in L.A., Couple things here. Yeezus was only ten tracks too, which was fantastic. And mm-hmm. I feel like the leaner the album, the better in general. I sure. feel like it's a very good look. But I think we are talking about something that we have touched on a couple times as we have previewed this album, which I guess we've now been doing since the day after Yeezus came out. And we were a little concerned. We were a little concerned. Our man had lost his way. He'd lost his mojo somewhere in the back streets of Milan. 
And what I find most encouraging is that the two tracks that he's released for these Good Fridays that are really like Good Saturday Afternoons at this point are both on the album. Yeah. Because I thought that good that Real Friends and, and especially No Parties in L.A. were just like, this was the fun he was having. This was just like the rough takes and there was something else coming, whether it was more Paul McCartney collaborations or whatever. These are the songs I want to hear. These are great songs. They are stripped down in a lot of ways. They, he sounds like he's enjoying himself. On No Parties in L.A., what does he say? He's like, you thought you would never hear me rap like this again? And then he raps for five minutes in a way he hasn't really rapped since Click? All in. Yeah, uh, I'm all in. And I actually, what made me even more excited than the actual track listing was some of the pictures he was tweeting out over the weekend, including one of him and Kendrick Lamar sitting on a couch where, that said, thanks to Mad Lib for sending over those five beat CDs. Mm-hmm. That was pretty great. Um, what about the picture of your man Gabe Tesorio just rocking white sneakers after Gabe Labor Day? Gabe movements. That was surprising, but... Very sparse uh, studio setting there. Not a lot of uh, not a lot of sectional couching. No, I kind of like the idea that you know if we're going to rip the bandaid off of glamour, like let's just remember that the majority of work in the entertainment business is done in like hideous puce rooms with drop ceilings. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter like how many Adidas contracts you have. You're still you're still going to the break room and being like, oh, we had a K cups. Ah, <laughs> spare Ooh. thought for for our heads in the entertainment industry. Uh, speaking of the entertainment industry, let's talk a little bit briefly in or out on the new Zach Galifianakis FX show Baskets. Look, I could go on a little bit of a jag about this because, you know, I outed myself. I'm in. Yeah, I'm big in, baby. But before I even explain why, I feel like you need to explain your feelings. I'm out, man. Fuck a clown. I'm about as interested in clown as clowns. Here's two professions that need to stop being uh, chronicled by by the entertainment industry. Clowns and 19th century fur trappers. Word. I thought you were also going to say entertainment industry professionals. We, could, we, <laughs> no, we, we should probably stop just, making movies about I don't care about, about the plight of clowns. There's nothing interesting about that to me. Well, here's what I feel like maybe you should check it out only because I think you're misjudging it. I think you're thinking about this in like a very like golden age of TV, like like The Sopranos is going to really show us the humanity of mobsters. Right. This is not a show about all clowning. You know what I mean? This isn't like solving the clown problem that's been vexing us. <laughs> this is just Galifianakis getting like gored by rodeo bulls while wearing mascara. Uh huh. Like it. <laughs> you're, I'm losing you. I'm losing. I'm seeing your face. Look, I laughed. I don't know what to tell you. I laughed. There's a part in the trailer where he's yelling into a takeout window about wanting a Schweppes. Yeah, I saw that. I mean, I, but I, it, do I have to watch the show or can I just watch that clip? Well, here's what I'll tell you. In the pilot. There, there's more. He, he, he wants. He, he asks if they have any drinks that are like Baja blasted. You know, he, he has a lot of he has a lot of soft drink requests. I don't know. I, I found it very, very funny. It's produced by by Louis C.K. as part of his new deal with FX and Galifianakis. You know, your mileage may vary with him, but it's pretty just. It's pretty funny. I, I really enjoyed it. Louis Anderson plays his mom. You know, so I, again. I, I wish cool. that this was a video pod again, because <laughs> I am seriously, I'm staring at one of the stone men that bit Jorah right now. Yeah, we, we do this. We, we also watch each other on Google Hangouts, so Andy can see my, my non-plus reaction. Okay, so for the record, Chris, we don't just stare at each other on Google Hangouts when we're recording. We just keep the window <laughs> no, open have, all day. You're, you're, you're always watching, which <laughs> is a good segue to X-Files. Oh, an X Files yes. that takes place in our modern NSA surveillance culture. Wow! X Files returned last night after the NFC Championship. Shout out to my man Carson Palmer. May he rest in peace. <laughs> uh, and um, 
you know, a lot of fanfare surrounding this. A lot of people rewatching multiple, if not all, seasons of X Files to get ready, get dug. I, I, I think we talked a little bit about this a few weeks ago, where I had said that X Files is a little bit of a, a blind spot for me. Although I am familiar with the mythology, I'm, I'm familiar with the the basic framework of the show. You enjoyed it. it was a uh, talent pool for a lot of like really big time showrunners and television writers. Now, um, Vince Gilligan, Frank Spotnitz from. Uh, from uh, Man in the High Castle, Darren Morgan. Some of them have returned. Some of them have not. Chris Carter is at the helm. Duchovny back. Jillian Anderson back. Uh, Andy, let me ask you, what did you think of uh, The Return of X-Files? That was garbage, man. That, like, I, I got to be honest with you. I I, I really refrained from saying Some anything. baskets. On twi- it's no baskets. It didn't really tell me enough about the plight of clowning, clownage. Yeah. Um. It was rough. I mean, it was a really, really bad hour of television to a degree that I was I, I, that left me kind of shocked. Now, I want to say this as a caveat: X Files, even at its best, was a very hit or miss show, which yeah. was very much what TV was when the X Files was on. There wasn't the sense that you know they were making twenty two a year, but there wasn't a sense that they all had to be good. Right. One of the reasons why the X Files rose above the morass of a lot of TV in the nineties was specifically because it could be so many different shows at once. There would be, a, you know, Darren Morgan would do a comedy episode, Vince Gilligan would do a thriller episode, and then Chris Carter would come in and do the overarching mythology that didn't didn't um, swallow the whole show, mm-hmm. basically. So they could do they could do these one-offs, these these less serialized things. Um, and by say, well, the reason I mention that now is because this is a six-episode reboot miniseries. The ratings were gangbusters, which may have been those attending Carson Palmer's wake. You, you never know. <laughs> but... Um, Basically, there's a chance they'll make more, but from what I understand, they're doing another one tonight. I've not seen it. It's a little better. And then I've heard the third episode, which is the one Darren Morgan did, which is a lot more comedic and light, like some of the best X-Files episodes were. That is the next one that will air, the third episode. And apparently it's very good. I have not seen it. I look forward to seeing it. That's the one they were showing fans when they were like doing special like convention appearances, because I think they all knew what a stinker this was. So my impression of watching this... it's, I, I agree with you uh, pretty much across the board. It, it felt not only uh, it wasn't only an awkward episode of television. It actually just felt um, not very much of the time in terms of its level of production. The acting seemed very wooden. The oh. writing seemed very, very strange, like it was made by an X-Bot, X-Files bot. You know, they even say X-Files and I want to believe like a lot in this show. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, our, our former Grandland colleague Mark Harris tweeted about it, where he, where he was like, the fact that they were like, the truth is out there and I want to believe proves the death, the fan service is the death of art. Yeah. Which, you know, th- this was a episode made, it's basically, it's less an t- episode of television and more a argument that you make to fans and network executives that you need to do this again. So the problem was that it took, I think it took all the wrong lessons, because I really feel like, contrary to what the way TV has gone in terms of you know, the emphasis on serialization. The thing that would make the X-Files great again, especially if they're only doing six episodes, um, do the light stuff. Make it an anthology show of creepy, creepy crawly cases of the week. Yeah. Because you cannot keep walking forward this mythology that basically, you know, melted into a pool of meaningless black oil 15 years ago. And this relationship between these characters that I guess they were together and they had a kid, but now they don't have a kid, but now she's a doctor... Just relax. You don't need to do this stuff. Part of the reason you take 10 years off is you don't have to do it. And so the the labor with which Chris Carter felt that he needed to bring to doing it all again was sort of a bum out. Yeah, I think that you, you touched on something really interesting there, which is that 
and I, I've seen this written about elsewhere. There was a piece on Al Jazeera America actually about how do you do X Files in the age of terror? Other people have talked mm-hmm. about X Files in the information age, etc. It, it it really is difficult. How do you do an X Files in the age of Black Mirror? You know, how do you really put out a show and have Gillian Anderson earnestly call call it the net? When she asks Fox yeah. Mulder if he has seen the net this morning, and you can't have that in a world in which people there are actually television shows engaging in technology and engaging with surveillance culture and and the dystopian future that we're all sort of living in in a really earnest way, like Black Mirror. I mean, it's sort of just it, kind of like showing your ass a little bit, especially because as shows like Black Mirror and reality like this one have proven, the things to be um, paranoid about are not little gray men anymore. Which is They're sort not... of the point of the show, right? Like the I think that the kind of interesting idea That's that they brought point. up is to say that what if it's it's almost the walking dead idea. It was like what if we're the problem? It's not the aliens that you should be scared of, it's the but, it's the 1%. Speaking just trying to represent the the this this the seven nation geek army here like that's kind of what the x-files always said though that's one of the things that i thought was so odd about this it but wasn't I thought just that the that... premise of the mythology was that there will be an alien invasion and that these cigarette smoking men are trying to prepare us for that yeah or they were basically collaborating or obfuscating but that they were the ones oh were they the were real... like they're gonna make sure that, that some people are okay and the that they out. survive or they get right. the magic dna that helps i never them understand that as a gambit why do you, you really want to be the like you know, comptroller of some some alien civilization. <laughs> it's like, oh, I'm so glad I prepared for these alien overlords to arrive so that I could get this plum middle management job having exactly. my bone marrow used for fuel. What is the corner what is the equivalent of the corner office on Zarkon B? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like what 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 is the comp package? Um I mean and then wouldn't you just forever be known as the most the snitchest of snitches like by like the guy like some alien walks up to you and be like, oh, you're one of those guys who sold out your own people so that I could suck your blood up. Nice to meet you, Bob. <laughs> On the plus side, I got to put 19 babies of alien spore in my favorite guest star on The Americans. <laughs> on the downside, you're kind of an untrustworthy character, and I'm not going to play you in squash. That was interesting. Yeah. When, uh, when, was that Nina from The Americans? Oh, he knows. He knows the name of the character. <laughs> I have Wikipedia. Um, when she's just like, check out all the scoop scars on my stomach, and Dana's like, still like, I'm going to need to just, I need to run some blood tests. I don't know. It's like, about the fact that's that it's pretty like, convincing. I don't think that they get that from cupping or whatever the Gwyneth Paltrow <laughs> thing is. Physician heal thyself where she's like, I guess I better take my own blood now too. <laughs> Whoopsie, I'm an alien. And the biggest problem with that was you, what you mentioned. The budget on this thing was so confounding, right? Because they only made six episodes. Now, Duchovny and Anderson got a lot of money for it and Julian Anderson talked last week to Vulture about how they initially offered her half of what they offered to Coveney, which is which is on some bullshit. And I'm glad that that she worked that out and got equal pay because she's as important to the show. But if the downside of their paychecks was that they could only hire five extras in Calgary to fill out the cast, because <laughs> yes. here's my point about Dr. Dana Scully. Dr. Dana Scully doesn't seem to know the difference between a nurse and a secretary. Yeah, because I'm she expecting is- a call. She is covered in arterial blood up to her neck. Yeah, was she doing, neck. like, the Thackeray self-surgery method she, there? What was going on? She, her, her body and torso looks like an angry Jackson Pollock painting. Yeah. And she's like, by the way, woman who's keeping the patient alive, could you just, could you just clear my sketch? Like, could you just get me a Frappuccino and maybe just, re, you know, update my Netflix subscription? Like, it, that is not, that's not how that relationship's supposed to work. 
But the thing is, is that you can write around those kinds of problems. Like you know, the, people have made things on shorter shoestring budgets than uh, the X Files probably had. My major issue was how um, they would sort of identify that um, whatever Nina from the Americans was living in very rural Virginia. And they would say, like, this is a helicopter and or a very long Jeep ride away. Yeah. But then they would start cutting to it like it was a Denny's down the street from where Fox Mulder lives. It was like, Fox is here again. And now Jillian, it's like, how far away is that from D.C.? Also, I'm sure I'm going to get somebody to tell, correcting me on this. But why, if he needs to meet the doctor in a super, like, private setting, is he meeting him at the Washington Monument? Yeah, I think that was that was just poor planning. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. maybe... Maybe their GPS was off. I'm I'm more concerned about the government waste in that the X Files program was shut down like over a decade ago, but they haven't reclaimed the office space. Like, <laughs> where's the GAO What's on that? On? Like, like you, probably there's a dude in accounting who needs that office. Yeah, somebody they can't they get the social team in there to run this the the government Snapchat out of there? I, 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 there were a lot of problems. Walter but, Skinner but, on Snapchat's a great follow, actually. But this is this is just a, a this is a problem in general where, I mean reboots we, we we i was gonna say we've talked about reboot culture a lot when it comes to tv but it's basically what we're gonna talk about for the next decade of this podcast yeah. um i think a a easier rule of thumb is that if you're just gonna be trying to do the same thing again don't do it if you have a fresher reason to try to do it okay maybe you can try to do it and so to, to your original point if there was interest or purpose in making the x-files for 2016 like, what does a show about conspiracies and paranoia and also the ability to have fun with these types of stories on broadcast TV? There is a case to be made for all three of those things in 2016. Yeah. But if your attempt is to just be like, no, no, but what if it was just this? Yeah, it's, it's handcuffed to its own mythology. I couldn't help but think about, um, do you remember that Richard Linklater movie Slacker came out roughly around the same time sure. as I think maybe a little bit before X-Files actually came on? But there's a scene in Slacker. It's you, If you haven't seen it, you should really watch it. It's a great great film from the 90s and uh there's a scene in which a guy is in a bookstore and he starts talking about the jfk conspiracy theories uh this film is a series of vignettes of basically just people talking but this guy's talking about jfk conspiracy theories and i remember when i saw the movie kind of having my mind blown about it because i hadn't been exposed to sort of alternative theories of jfk's assassination and then of course jfk the movie comes out a few years later and that sort of popularized a lot of very under you know some underground theories about what happened to jfk and I was thinking about this. It's like, are there really any conspiracies anymore when you can just Google them? You know, it's like if, if you type in anything into YouTube, some Alex Jones video is going to be among yes. the results that says, actually, that was a false flag. And, you know, it's all about what's in our water. It, and, it, you know, fluoride, it, you, you got to. <laughs> it's not. Here's the thing about the, the character of Fox Mulder in 1993 was incredibly cool. Yeah. Right. Because he was in a position of authority and power but gave great credence to these outsider ideas and tracked them down and did the work. Now to do the work, as you're saying, you just type some words into a into a, into a a search engine. Yeah, I mean, Fox and, Mulder's character should actually be the character they have Joel McHale playing. Like, what would have happened if Fox Mulder had yes. become a crazy talk show host? That's much more interesting, right, because the, the character of Fox Mulder now, having accomplished nothing, I, I guess, in 23 years, except seeing young Russian women get, get scooped on, like... <laughs> He's sort of a tragic or almost pathetic figure, right? He's like living off the grid, just you know, let, letting his letting his beard go to almost Californication levels. Yeah, that's not that interesting of a character. Like he's not—I don't know if it's heroic or what. It, it, it also seems... feels like did Duchovny just not want to shave to do the show? <laughs> like was he just like, what if I don't shave? 
<laughs> what if he's like counterpitch to Carter? He's like, I come back and do it for a lot of money. But what, what if I just wear Wranglers in this this gray T-shirt? But there's also a sliding scale of like I, I remember when Duchovny was like he was up and coming, and I, he did a he did a turn on Twin Peaks, and then he got this show, and and people were very taken with him because he was a good actor, he's an interesting performer, right? And he's a very smart guy. Mm-hmm. And that was part of his story. That he went to Princeton and, and blah blah blah. But the word that people would use to describe his acting style was like laconic, right? Yeah, he was sort of sly or commenting a little bit, winking, smarter than the material in a way that was appealing. There's a very thin line between laconic and what appears to be phoning it in, you know, and I feel like that may have slipped out of his hands. And I'm not saying he's not invested in this. It just didn't seem like he was yeah. in this episode. And maybe that was the way it was cut. Maybe it was the terrible dialogue that he was he was forced to say in this episode. I don't know. But and I'm hoping this third episode, you know, fixes a lot of things because what people want. I feel like I don't know if I can speak for can I speak for people? Sure. Speak for the, the files heads out there. I don't think people really wanted to have all these nonsensical um, threads tied together into some knot that made sense. They wanted to watch their stories again, and they wanted to watch these great characters who have great chemistry interact and steer into that. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. But but decisions, I don't know, the best of intentions, man. I don't know. It, it, it was a pretty rough episode, but all will be forgiven when the ratings come out. And if, you know, if yeah, the one, ratings one apparently were very season. good. We'll see what happens next week when they don't have Cam Newton to help them out. Uh, Andy, we're going to talk about a show we're both very into next. But first, let's take a quick break from our sponsor. Channel 33 is brought to you by Lisa. Lisa is just like Tom's Shoes or Warby Parker, except it's for mattresses. Lisa has done away with the awkward mattress showroom experience that we've all suffered through by creating a luxury mattress that is ordered completely online and ships for free to your doorstep, compressed in a box the size of a mini fridge. What a world. The 10-inch mattress comes in all sizes and is crafted with three unique foam layers, including two inches of memory foam and two inches of a really cool latex-like foam called Avena that's perforated to keep you cool as the other side of the pillow. Lisa gives you 100 nights to try your mattress risk-free, and for every 10 they sell, they donate one to a shelter. How awesome is that? Go to lisa.com slash bspn, that's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash bspn, and enter promo code bspn at checkout to get $75 off. Okay, we're back. Andy, you know, we may have been a little bit of wishy-washy on X-Files, but one show that's a new show that's come out that we are all in on is BBC America's London Spy. So in on this. It's so good to be in on a show. Oh, man. I love television. This is... uh, (laughs) So the first episode of London Spy, I think, came out like two weeks ago. No, it it aired on Thursday. Okay, but the second second episode is actually available, at least on Time Warner On Demand, so I'm assuming on most On Demand. So I think they put up two episodes at least made available. And the first episode is... um, Here's the setup. Uh, Ben Wishaw, who you may remember from Spectre and... um, the other most recent Bond films and was also in In the Heart of the Sea. Uh, he is plays a guy named Danny who's working at a, uh, a Home Depot type place. Did you end up seeing In the Heart of the Sea? I did, yeah. yeah. You know, you get a lot of burn for your love of that movie in theory. I, for yeah, your, your all-time I, Grandland post, The Sea is Dope, but we never had a follow-up. Was How dope was the movie? It was pretty dope, but you know what? I think that I'm more into submarines maybe than a surface boats whoa yeah i can't believe we buried the lead in this podcast people are like <laughs> skipping over this part because they don't want to know about london or spies and here you are redefining <laughs> aquatic entertainment for a generation I'm just a little bit more into k19 Widowmaker than the replacement level surface boat movie although i would put master i mean i think master commander is very high up in my c rankings yeah me too but it's still below 
Crimson Tide and Hunt for October. Which, which is ironic because those movies, the action takes place below yes. where Master and the Commander takes place. So yes. you, you're, the, the takeaway from this little digression is that the sea is so dope, you just want to just surround yourself I don't yourself even want to see it. the sky. Yeah, you that's how care. dope the sea is. Okay. Um, back to London Spy, though. He plays Danny, a guy who's working in the London version of Home Depot or some shipping plant or whatever. He's got... A go-nowhere life. Uh, he even describes himself in the second episode as having a small life, I believe. Uh, and he's out doing drugs and having uh, brief encounters with, with other men. And one morning as he's coming down from drugs, he bumps into this guy named Alex who's jogging and seems to have his life together. The two fall in love. They have a romance over the course of the first episode. And it's a, a very, very British. It takes its time getting where it's going. And you get to the end, and and uh, and then it turns out Alex, uh, something befalls Alex, something very bad. Well, or what we thought we knew about him is not quite. Yes, both of those things happen. Uh, so the rest of the uh, series is basically Danny trying to figure out what has happened to Alex, uh, and. W- just exactly who Alex was, because a lot of institutions, a lot of agencies, etc., are, uh, are are closing in on Danny. He is um, it's a very Hitchcockian tale of a man versus a shadowy conspiracy. Um, it also features uh, some great, great performances from Jim Broadbent, the mighty racist Charlotte Rampling. <laughs> Charlotte um, Rampling having the best week ever. Mark Gaddis, who uh, works on who's one of the you know kind of creators of the new Sherlock, is in it. Um, so many, there's a lot of but great cameos. Can we just say for for people who might be dubious about accented television, Lester Freeman from The Wire is in it. Lester Clark Freeman, Peters. Clark Peters is in it. So the first episode is is pretty good. The second episode is gangbusters. It is one of like the more like what is going to happen next. Not in yeah. the Homeland way, but just in a incredibly creative, intuitive way. I haven't also seen a show like this in a while that does the unreliable narrator in a way that's just. It it feels both safe but also very exciting because you just don't know whether or not Danny is losing his mind. Yeah, I mean, let me say a couple things about why the show is so good. I think people who listen to us know that if you name a show London Spy, we're going to give it at least four episodes. Yeah, we like both of those things a lot, and we especially like them when they overlap. Um, it, it really almost doesn't matter this, the arc of the story that's basically you know a British espionage story because we're just we are both suckers for that entire genre and for that style of storytelling and often the best stuff in them is contextual and specific so the broad strokes of like a John le Carre novel and a Len Dighton novel aren't that different but you get into the nitty-gritty of his point of view on the characters and how they interact and you know where they like to go when they're undercover in East Berlin and that's that's where the story comes from the genius of London Spy is that the title is in many ways a total misdirect because Danny is not a spy and has no familiarity with this world and is in completely over his head. And so what the show does is it sort of Trojan horses a spy story within the trappings of a much more complicated emotional and romantic thriller. Mm-hmm. It is such an interesting way to lay a path into a story that maybe maybe we recognize some of the players in or the broad strokes of. It's not something I'd ever seen before. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that the the main theme of the show seems to be that that a life of espionage is 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 just more broadly a life in the underworld, and that right. and being part of a espionage world or a world of espionage is to be a part of an anti-establishment life. It's sort of an anti-establishment statement. There's a lot of connections that are made between Danny and Jim Broadbent's characters' homosexuality and their their sort of 
life paths and the idea that being a spy and that being sort of hidden it, it, it has like there there there's a relationship between their sexual orientation and their and their and their their lives in espionage that are really really interesting no that's right when danny first meets alex and he says are you out and alex shakes his head i mean that is a very fraught question yeah. because considering where he's going in his life and what and- is he out from and yeah and, and, you know, another thing to say about this, that just piggybacking on the, we had a brief conversation last week when we touched on the Oscar diversity stuff. You know, the value of diversity isn't in meeting a quota or recognizing people at award shows. It's that when we watch the show, this story is completely, to- I mean, the, the guy who created Tom Rob Smith. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he wrote Child 44, yeah. And now I really want to read his books. Um, is a thriller writer and is also gay himself. And to the the, sh- the show is, is written and produced with a from that point of view mm-hmm. right it is not a straight story retrofitted for gay characters or the gay, char- gay characters aren't on the margins of the story they are the primary characters in the story and the gender politics of it and the sexual politics of it are flipped from those of us who are you know generally expecting a more heteronormative story yeah. on tv that in alone is fascinating it was completely surprising and then when you see danny you know um putting things together basically you know, very often in these stories, like in everything from Jason Bourne to probably almost every novel that we really enjoy, the so-called mild-mannered characters, when they are cornered, maybe they can suddenly do kung fu with magazines. Yeah, right. right? right. They can Danny fight. is they incapable can... of that. Danny's incapable of that. But what he does have, and it's really interestingly stated by Charlotte Rampling, is when she says, it's like you have a sort of male-female intuition. A fe- feminine, female feminine. intuition about people, yeah. Which was such an odd phrasing. And it was so weighted and interesting coming from... Um, Charlotte Rampling's character, who we won't explain who she is yet, um, although she's a big fan of all the races in this, um, just just big and flag waving NAACP member. Um, but uh, yeah, not just who she is, but then who she's talking to and the, what he's actually accomplishing. It's really fascinating. You you, I'm so mad at you. Jumped ahead of me. I've only seen two, but you said the third one's just as good. Third one's really gripping uh the less said about the third one the better uh i do want to point out one thing not point out like i'm i do want to mention one thing which is that the the spy part might be a little bit of a misnomer because the the main protagonist is such a novice in this world but the london part is actually equally important and it is an incredible london show and one of the cool things about it is it's not very flashy it's a very specific vision of london often at night and it's about this guy who's sort of Passing through the, you know, England has a, you know, obviously well-documented class system that's much different, much more rigid than America's. And the way in which Danny has to go into these different sort of pockets of power and uh, society. And then also just like the the walkways next to the Thames and the, the sort of underground tunnels and the tube and these factories and these warehouse nightclubs that he goes to. It's very lived in knows its setting really well and you know if you if you're interested in london at all it's a great show to watch i'm really glad you mentioned that because this is the thing that i wanted to say about it too which is that it's immediately lived in and contextual in a way that's not bullshit yeah and i feel like that is such an undervalued thing across all mediums and it's particularly hard to do in tv where the necessities of production mean that you know you can't Unless you're Matt Weiner or unless you're a miniseries like this, you, you probably can't pay attention to every detail that would make it consistent. Of course, the reality is, you know, you're letting these little things slip and then you see a necklace on a character or an apartment that a character lives in. And you're like, mm, no. Yeah. And it, and it takes you out of it. And I was thinking about this when I saw um, 
you know, you, the other night, I, I do this thing. I know you love this when I'm like, Chris, <laughs> what movie should I watch tonight? Oh, God. And you were like, The Intern is delightful. And I was like, I don't want to watch that. And then your next response was, what was the, it was like Death Blow 9. What did you say? I, I said watch? The Raid 2. You were, the Raid why don't you 2. give it a little bit more context? You weren't asking me for my favorite films of the year. You were saying me and my wife would like to watch something. Oh, sure. And I said the, the intern would, might be something a couple would enjoy. Uh-huh. I was uh-huh. like, go run back Sicario, you fool. Who's heteronormative now, buddy? <laughs> anyway, um, I ended up watching. Uh, you big Olivier Assayas guy, French director? I, I am. Irma Vep, demon lover? This dude made a movie. I'm really into Demon Lover. Demon, this, this Are we guy, really going to talk about Clouds of Souls Maria? I just wanted to say Clouds of Souls Maria is You don't get to dope. mention every time you watch a movie. <laughs> it's so rare. And funny enough, did you know, I bet you didn't know this, it came out in March and our our man Wesley Morris reviewed it in a, in a joint review with, are you ready for it? Ex Machina. Oh. Can you believe that? That's what great. So you could have stopped reading the internet back then. I just wanted to say, boy, his review is really good, too, that this movie is terrific, and Kristen Stewart is amazing in it, mm-hmm. which I never thought I would say. But what I, the reason I brought it up, there is a reason. <laughs> it's because the opening shot of it is on a train. It's on a cross-European train, right? And Kristen Stewart is yeah. juggling phone calls because she plays Julia Pinocha's assistant. And I was so struck by those opening images, not because Kristen Stewart was good and not a vampire in this movie but because it I, I bought it like immediately i'm like that's a place they are physically in a place and it's interesting and i don't know who these people are i don't know where they're going and i've never been on that particular train because zurich's not my bag but i was immediately with it Did you add on zurich what's wrong with no, zurich? I, i'm sorry to all our swiss fans i just meant like maybe i was giving the wrong idea about you know uh euro rail passes i don't See, know the thing that. is that when the night manager comes out Andy's going to be like look as a longtime resident of zurich i have to say <laughs> the rendering of the alps is just wonderful no but do you know what i mean i i just i i know I, maybe this is because i haven't been writing TV reviews with the frequency or at all since our old job ended. Mm-hmm. And when you're writing pieces, you sometimes, you know, you have to, you, you dive into the weeds and you're talking about micro things, this and that, that work, that didn't work, maybe on the story level or the performance level. But recently when I've been watching things, I've been enjoying more, I've been in or out on the packet, the whole production. Sure. And what I mean is the rarity of a moment uh, where you're like, okay, that's something. That feels real. I believe it. And how hard that is on TV. And I don't want to use the X-Files as an example because that was obviously a, it's a network <laughs> show. It's a big, you know, it's a, a lot of attention paid to it. Reboot. They filmed it. I don't know what level the Canadian dollar was at when they filmed it, but I imagine it was favorable. <laughs> yeah. But, but there's not a, but there wasn't a single moment in that, whether it was, you know, Scully's um, secretarial pool slash surgical hall of horrors or Mulder's cabin or, you know, the place where Nina got scooped. Where you're like, I feel like I am somewhere. That is a place. Right. That's all I'm saying. And and I we maybe we should come up with a better word for it, but it's just something to track across entertainment. Whereas as T V budgets go up and the attention paid to them and the respect paid to them go up, they gotta get that right, man. Yeah, man. I mean I have three words for you right. in response to all that, and that is Nancy Myers's Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> so if you get a chance to see the intern, I think you're gonna see a rich tapestry of Brooklyn yeah. life. Does it reflect my experience, do you think? <laughs> yeah. Actually, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you you asshole. <laughs> <laughs> oh man all right uh let's uh you're talking a little bit about hollywood production values and 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 and, and the way you see the story uh today we, we wouldn't we would be remiss if we didn't mention this today um vulture ran one of their cover stories today about the uh rise and precipitous fall and possible slight rise again of relativity media's founder ryan cavanaugh now ryan cavanaugh kind of came onto the scene a few years ago 
I guess the easiest way to explain it would be like he was sort of the money ball of Hollywood. He kind of, you know, he came in and he said, look, I have the math that will actually uh, I can I can I can sketch out what is going to be a box office success and what won't based on all this this algorithm that I've developed over years. And um, if you let me get my hands on the on the money, we can make hits together. So he started to get the money and something. This was news to me. You got You guys got to read this article. But he also got access to what studios protect more, you know, with more um, importance than their own emails, apparently, which is something called the Ultimates. Yeah. And that's not the Marvel comic book. That's l- the actual truth about what money movies made and how they made it. Right. And that's based off of whatever their, you know, the at, the promotion and advertising budget that they put into it, whatever Gerard Butler needed, you know, a gold plated trailer on Machine Gun Preacher, etc. Once they get that, the, the word is Gerard Butler deserved a gold plated trailer <laughs> on Machine Gun Preacher. So obviously, this guy comes in, he's talking big game and big numbers, and for a while there, it looked like he had got the keys to the castle and he had figured everything out. And then, as these things tend to do, the bottom fell out, and uh, a lot of borrowing and you know lending that had been going on started to, the you know people started to call in their their t- their chits with him and. Uh, they were forced relatively was relatively was forced to file for bankruptcy, but not before some absolutely spectacular details that are re- reported in this uh, Benjamin Wallace piece that just captures all of these amazing details um, from this story. And I thought we would share a little some of these with you guys. I think that's nice of us. So uh, one of the the. The, the thing that I think grabbed Andy's attention the most was um, the way that Ryan Kavanaugh t- tried to, shall we say, court um, some of Hollywood's talent into working with him. Uh-huh. So here's from the piece. Uh, Meanwhile, once lean relativity had packed on the pounds, every new asset required staff to run. Kavanaugh had three assistants, a private jet habit, and also a penchant for making lavish gifts to actresses, including leasing a horse for Kate Bosworth. I got so many for questions. For six months so they could ride together, buying a rare $65,000 edition of the Diary of Anne Frank for Natalie Portman, and, and also sometimes throwing, having going to dinner, uh, he would go to dinner and a, a partner of Kavanaugh's recall, recalls that he added a $20,000 tip to a $3,500 bill. That's just generous. The service industry is, is, is rough. Let me just... Kate let Bosworth, me, man. Do you, you think Bosworth needs a horse? Let me, let me jump in on a couple things here. First of all, no gift or gesture more romantic than Holocaust literature. Like that's just that's just the keys to a lady's heart, you know? That is that's straight out of the game. Like that I I cannot I cannot begrudge that. Two, I want a television show or at least a movie or maybe a web series about Hollywood's horse leaser to the stars. Because yes. who started who is that the business? Person who who is like, the middleman on that? Who's yeah. like you know, I, I you know, here I am living in Orange County and here I am with all these horses. Yeah. But I love them and I don't want to sell them. What I would like to do is find some system where I, I provide the horses for a minimum of time to people who deserve them and really care about them, like Blue Crush star Kate Bosworth. And finally, the end of that web series, right, would be a brutal reveal where, do you remember there was that Robert Pattinson movie from a couple years ago where, like, he went through some stuff and at the end he's like, I'm going to be great now and happy on my first day at work. And it pulls is back. Is that like Water for Elephants? Yeah, oh, no, that was the, the, the other one. And then it pulls back and it's 9-11 and he works in the World Trade Center. It's like right. rough stuff. Anyway. Um, chill out X-Files <laughs> chill out X-Files but the end of the web series about Hollywood's horse leaser it's just like I think you're going to love these horses sir remind me again what's the name of the project you're working on it's called Luck why and then the show's over <laughs> I don't want to second guess Ryan Kavanaugh's 
courtship rituals here but don't you think that kate bosworth is in for kind of a sad ending to this like her her horse relationship if he's like oh yeah i only got a six month lease on this guy so yeah i gotta give it to rachel bilson now can you learn to like be really good at horse riding in six months i feel like it's a lifetime of learning exactly i mean it's like it's one thing to get a volkswagen golf and be like well gotta send this one back it's another thing if you've got secretariat with you the the other Um, thing that he did by the way is you know he got really into the capuchin monkey from the hangover and then wanted to get one, but found out yes. it's illegal to have one Because Bradley Cooper told him about the experience. So his follow-up was like, okay, well, get me a baby wolf. <laughs> How do you track that thinking? Uh, some other highlights from this article include Kavanaugh had by this point opened a, quote, family office called Night Global. That's always just like a great, just throw global on the end of any company name you want. Run by his brother Matthew out of the hangar, out of a hangar in Santa Monica, which took states in a, stakes in a miscellany of companies including ones that made hangover patches and vapes. Now, I'll allow the hangover patch because sure. it could be tied into the hangover, but, I mean, vapes? Let, let's, let's go big picture here because what I would really like... I mean, we talked about Billions last week. This is basically Billions. And, in fact, it's <laughs> it kind of a very, very compelling version of Billions, one that I really wish Paul Thomas Anderson would make a movie of because I feel like there's an inherent vice slash Billions movie about this guy. And since P.T. Anderson is really into making films about the mythology of California, this guy who, and you read the story, you know, we're, we're calling out like the, the A-list stuff, but it's a fascinating character, right? His father was the kid, the child of Holocaust survivors and changed his name to Kavanaugh to fit in. And then yeah. named his child Ryan, like Ryan Colin, Brendan Patrick McManus, uh, Kavanaugh or whatever like that's the lady doth protest too much are you talking about his parents who in 2012 a 2012 fraud trial yeah uh the jury found that Jack and Leslie Kavanaugh were liable for selling two million dollar fake Picasso to a friend <laughs> and Jack had taken an eight hundred thousand dollar kickback from the gallery dealer who commissioned the painting for a thousand dollars you end up in those situations but I don't know where are you who is dealing fake Picassos but this is so fascinating this world and it's all phony but what's amazing about it is the First of all, that he he clearly there are th- okay. There are three business stories here that I find interesting. One is the idea that you can moneyball movies, which everyone is trying to do. Um, in the in the last days of Grandland, I did a podcast with uh, with Jody from Five Thirty Eight, where he yeah he brought in a guy whose company is basically like I can tell you how much money this will make, and he's really? he's generally right. You know that's there are algorithms that you can put into in terms of stars people like, types of stories they like, the feedback the trailers are getting. You can know a lot of this stuff. Um, there's two I'm of two minds about that. One, it's the death of art. How awful, right? Like a yeah. Paul Thomas Anderson movie is not going to score well on these metacritic things, but you kind of still want to make them unless unless you're half of inherent vice. But the other part of it is like, you know, these things cost a lot of money and you, you know, if if your job is to work in a business, then you have to worry about that stuff. So that's interesting. So the appeal of what he was offering is in and of itself interesting. Two. Yeah, what's well, yeah. His business model appears to basically have been Amazon, which is basically like as long as I grow and I'm showing growth, yes, people will keep giving me money. And you read the story; it's like then he met with the Chinese. Then yeah, he, he met went with to a... China for six weeks and basically shook everybody's hand to try and get like enough money to keep the company. It's he's always stealing from Peter to pay Paul. It's kind of amazing, um, but that worked. It's it's not amazing that it worked, but it's that amazing that it maybe continues to work. And we should we'll, we'll finish with that thought. But the the last thing is that the pure seduction of the bullshit, right? That is yeah. still so prevalent that you can, there are a lot of stories in this story that I found so interesting, which is basically like, I would walk out of these meetings dazzled and then be like, wait, what did we just agree to? 
Right, Ryan, what are you even talking about? Yeah. That's kind of amazing. And then when you look at his his lineup of films, right? I mean, he made The Fighter with David O. Russell, but that was a pretty good movie, you know? Um, he also made The Immortals with Henry Cavill. Right, and 30 to 40 movies just like that. I mean, if you look at the list of movies he made, they it's, it's as if they don't exist, right? They, yeah, it, I just wanted to mention, Ryan... Just maybe just like a quick new skin on the homepage for relatively media, relatively what, media. What, what, what is it like? Is it like the Space Jam well, page? Well, not 97? surprisingly, upper right hand corner before I wake star and Kate Bosworth and Thomas Jane. Before I wake <laughs> um, the horses? Is that what yeah, it's called? Is it? Yeah, seriously, before I wake up the guy who lent me this horse. Um, Masterminds, which I'm not sure ever came out with Zach Galifianakis, your boy from Baskets. Never, never uh, came out. They shut down production, I think. Beyond the Lights, which is a good movie. Um, and then things like The Best of Me with uh, Michelle Monaghan. Uh, Desert Dancer, I am not familiar with that title, and Limitless, the television show. I, I, I guess what I want to say, and the movie, but I guess what I want to say is one thing that we bemoan often when we're talking about certain movies is the the loss of the middle ticket movie, the middle tier film, right? Yeah. The, the fine, the B to B plus movie made for adults that's enjoyable. And what's interesting about the Relativity Slate is if you look at the types of movies and the types of stars he was working with, that's kind of the middle he was targeting. Right? Yes. There was this idea that he could make profits off of a series of $30 million movies as opposed to striking it big on a brilliant $5 million movie or losing a ton on a $200 million movie. And so every time we say we want there to be more, um, I don't, what was the movie we were saying we wanted there to be more of just recently? Um, I, I don't see that many, so I don't remember. I mean, maybe, you know, even when we were talking about Focus and things like that. It must have been The Intern. Yeah. No, yeah, you were saying Focus. You were saying um, like the, the con man movie. Every should, time we talk about that, this is... Minutes. This is probably what will happen when someone tries to do that. So it's yeah. just a, it's a very sobering and interesting look at the industry. And then the third act twist is that he's not out of the woods because apparently he's coming out of battling out of bankruptcy by handing the studio over to your he man Frank Underwood. Kevin Spacey's production company and installed Kevin Spacey and Dan Brunetti uh, as the sort of heads of relatively relativity films. And he's still fighting. And, you know, it's funny at the end, there's a couple of quotes like Mark Canton or somebody says, you know, Hollywood loves a comeback story. I feel like Hollywood loves a comeback story. If you get caught with Coke on the, the PCH in Malibu, do they love it when you take their money and don't pay them back? It's a pretty good point. Um, I, I, I would I would argue no, because his whole appeal was that it was a bottom line thing you know i mean the yeah. reason he won people the whole over, thing was is just this is there you don't need to worry about this stuff because the numbers will take care of it right i mean there's sort of there are three figures right in hollywood there's the there's the artists that you chase no matter what because you still believe in part of your soul that that there's it's worth making art and that's why paul thomas anderson will get to keep making movies but you don't have paul thomas anderson if you don't have megan ellison who's a billionaire and just writes checks to make these movies. And right. It doesn't matter how much they cost or how much they make or not. Like, that's not her business model. So then the third character who's necessary is this guy who walks into the rooms and is like, no, I'll make it work. I will make yeah. it work. And that's all anyone wants. All anyone wants is certainty, right? I don't mean to sound psychologically deep because it's all we want in any of our lives. But certainly in a business this high cost, that's what you want. But, I mean, what a fascinating story. Yeah. It's pretty interesting. So uh, we'll wrap up there. Next week we'll be back. We got a lot of television coming up soon. Um, what else? What's coming up soon? Uh, People versus OJ Simpson. Oh yeah, Better Call Saul's coming soon. So we got we got a bunch of stuff coming. Uh, Andy and I will be back next Monday. Check out London Spy. Proceed with X Files at your own peril. Yeah. When are we going to do our um, modern French cinema pod? Like, is that should we bring Juliet and Amanda in on that? Do we want to? Should we just plan it off air? We. Oh, we! Look at you! (laughs) I'll talk to you next week, man. Great job, Bransky!